Well, good morning. What a, what a joy to, to gather on Sunday to worship the Lord, to share in the Lord's Supper together. We are blessed. Um, as we're settling in, I just want to give another quick update on our team in Kenya. They are still in Kenya. They have now completed the second week of training for pastors and their wives. These are just some of the lives that were touched through their work there over the past two weeks. And now they're preparing to return. In fact, they're on their way back now. So there's our youngest ambassador in braids. Not changed, just braids. And Dan with one of the men there. Now, this morning, Sunday morning in Kenya, which would be like around midnight last night, our time, our time, uh, they went to another local church and Dave got to bring the message there. And isn't this cool? It's called the Happy Church. I want to be a pastor at the Happy Church. You're supposed to say, Paul, you already are. <laughs> I hope so. Well, afterwards, they gathered for a happy meal. Actually, these are the leaders of the church that gathered together to take a picture with our team members. I thought that was so cool. And so now they're actually on their way home. Uh, we mapped out their itinerary based on the flight plan. And so right now as we speak, they're on a small commuter going from Eldoret uh, to Nairobi, Kenya. It's just an hour flight. Then they're going to board a flight this afternoon from Nairobi all the way up to uh, the Netherlands. And that's where they'll connect to an overnight flight home. And they'll get in about 2.30 tomorrow afternoon. It's about 28 hours of travel time. And it looks like a circuitous route, but that's actually the shortest route because it's shorter to go up over the top of the earth than to go around like an, you know, like around the equator. And so that is their path and they're in the air now and we want to just keep praying for them. In fact, let's just take a moment and pray right now. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for your church universal, for the work that you're doing, advancing your kingdom around the world. And God, that we can have a part in that, that you raised up these men and women from our own body and others got behind them in support, God, and have sent them out. And a great work has been done, Lord, in equipping your pastors and your leaders and your people. And so, God, we just thank you for all that is done. I pray that those, those words that were spoken would be seeds that would just take root and bear much fruit in the hearts of these people, God. And we ask that you would bring our team home safely, that it would be a great reunion back here at Riverside and that your work would continue. So we thank and praise you for all that you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back here in the United States, we spend $4.3 trillion a year on health care. That's 18% of our gross domestic product. It's $12,900 per person per year. And if you have an average family of 3.13 people, well, that would be $40,377 per family in the United States. More than $40,000 on health care. That's huge. Clearly, we place a high value on preserving and extending life here on earth. And that's 
not wrong necessarily, but do we live as though this life is all there is? A 10-year-old boy named Raymond offered this perspective. He said, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. <laughs> he was pretty perceptive. But a little nine-year-old girl named Stephanie had a different take on it. She said, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay their bill. <laughs> yeah. $4.3 trillion worth of bills every single year. But let's bring into the discussion the perspective of someone else, the Apostle Paul. He said this, he said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yeah, we talked about this in our Recalibrate Men's Bible Study yesterday morning. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It seems so strange. We believe this. Do we live like this is true? I mean, it is true, but do we live as though death is not the end, as though there is much more beyond just this life? Well, in the town of Valladolid, Spain, there's a monument there to the great discoverer, Christopher Columbus. He died in this town in 1506. And so this, mo this monument is commemorating him. And the statue includes a globe. You can see that round sphere in the middle. And there's a banner with some words wrapped around it. And those words are the Spanish motto, non plus ultra, which means no more beyond. Now, Columbus, before he made his voyage, the Spaniards had this as their national motto for centuries, no more beyond. But what's fascinating about this monument is that it depicts a lion tearing down the first letters of that motto, so that now it only says plus ultra, more beyond. See, with the discovery of the new world, Columbus had proven that there was much more beyond just what they knew. So a question for us to consider, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, do you live your life as if this is all there is, or as if there is much more beyond? And regardless of where we are, believer, unbeliever, we need to recalibrate our thinking and recalibrate our perspective and our priorities with the Word of God. And so we're going to have a chance to do that this morning as we continue in this series in 1 John, where the message title is going to be Absolute Certainty of Eternal Life. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, just three verses. And I hope what we'll see is the offer of life in verse 11, the essence of life in verse 12, and then the assurance of life in verse 13. It's, it's really a short text, but it didn't fit in with last week, and we're going to change subjects as we go into the verses that follow. So we're going to just take these three verses, and what I hope you'll see is maybe even a new, different perspective on eternal life and what it is and what it means for us. So let's just start by reading through these three verses. Again, I'm reading in the 1984 NIV translation. And it reads, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. 
And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now last week the focus of the passage was all on testimony. And the unique thing about those verses is that it wasn't the testimony of man. It was the testimony of God himself. And we saw that God had given us three witnesses and they all had the same testimony. One of those was the water. And we have this history of symbolism that pointed forward to the ultimate purification in Jesus Christ. And then the second was the blood. And like the water, it was symbolically woven through the history of God's people and it points to one final sacrifice in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins once for all. And then the third witness is the Spirit. And the Spirit was at work in all of these events, pointing to Jesus Christ as God's Son, and then affirming this testimony in the heart of every believer by nothing less than his indwelling presence. So we have these three witnesses testifying, to the water, the blood, and the Spirit. But it's not until we get to verse 11 that it tells us what the testimony really is. And so that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. And I want to look first at the offer of life in verse 11. And it reads this. It says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Now, there's a whole lot packed into this little sentence. I thought, wow, there's only three verses. There's not enough content here. Uh, boy was I surprised as I just dug into scripture and started praying through it so notice first of all God has given us eternal life he doesn't reward us with eternal life he doesn't compensate us with eternal life as if we've done something to earn or deserve it that's not what it says it says he's given us eternal life Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're familiar with it. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then Romans 6, 23, another passage you're probably familiar with. For the wages of sin is death. That you earn. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve this extraordinary, extravagant gift. No amount of money or good deeds or attendance could ever deserve or earn that. In fact, to even think that it could just really cheapens the gift. The most expensive house in America is a $295 million Bel Air mega mansion named The One. Is this a thing now that people like name the house? <laughs> this house has a name, The One. I, I don't know what my house would be called. <laughs> I don't think it would be The One. Um, but that's the name of this thing. And it is 105,000 square feet of opulence with 21 bedrooms, 
42 baths. Why do you need two baths for every bedroom? <laughs> I don't get that part. A 30-car garage, a 10,000-bottle wine cellar, five swimming pools, a 4,500-foot guest house, if I could just stay there. Property taxes alone are a whopping $3.7 million per year. They're paying their fair share. <laughs> now imagine if the owner of this mega mansion was going to give it to you. He says, here, it's yours. But you turn around and say, oh, now wait a minute. Don't give it to me. Here, here's 20 bucks. We'll call it even. You give him 20 bucks for this mega mansion and feel like you've done a good thing. How insulting would that be? Well, that's what we do when we suggest that we've done something to earn God's free gift of eternal life. God, I've, I've been good. I, I gave to the church. I helped the poor. I've gone to church every Sunday. Do you really, do we really think that that should qualify us for something as unimaginable as eternal life? That's like offering 20 bucks for a mega mansion. Scripture says this eternal life is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift. But we have to keep in mind, just because it's free to us doesn't mean it didn't cost God anything. Our salvation was purchased at a tremendous cost. It cost God the life of his one and only son. Stephen shared this morning as we were going through the Lord's Supper, it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ that we were redeemed. He became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor. This cost God tremendously, but it's a free gift to us. Now, the very fact that it is a free gift means that there is a requirement for us. Like any gift, it must be accepted. It must be received. 1 John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I've shared with you a couple times the true story of a man named George Wilson, I don't think he's related to R. Wilson's, maybe. But George Wilson, in 1830, was convicted of robbing a federal payroll. And that was actually a capital offense. And he was sentenced to death by hanging. But President Andrew Jackson stepped in and pardoned him of the capital offense crime. There were a handful of other crimes threatening a, a public a, a government official. There were some gun violations. Andrew Jackson pardoned him of the capital offense and was going to let him just serve the prison sentence for the remaining crimes. It would have been about 20 years. But for some, some unexplained reason, Wilson declined the pardon. He rejected it. And so, well, what do we do now? And so the matter went to the Supreme Court and probably the greatest chief justice we've ever known, Justice John Marshall, his statue's out in front of the Supreme Court building. And Marshall wrote this, he said, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. 
George Wilson must be hanged. What happened to it? <laughs> I thought I, there it is. George Wilson must be hanged. So a pardon is only a pardon if you accept it. In a similar way, forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ is a gift, but it's only a gift that benefits you if you accept it, if you receive it. Those who refuse his gift will have to pay the penalty for sin themselves, which will be separation from God eternally. Now, I'm, I'm not making this up. I want you to trust me, but I don't want you to just take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus said to a certain group of Jews. He said in John chapter 5, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Isn't that something? You refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Imagine that. There are probably some here this morning that refuse to come to Jesus Christ to have the free gift of eternal life. Yet he offers it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But we do have to receive it. We have to accept it. So this is the offer. Eternal life is the gift of God. Let's look next at the essence of life. And I'm going to guess that there's some confusion when it comes to eternal life and what it is and what it isn't. For instance, here would be some incorrect statements regarding eternal life. Eternal life begins the moment I die. Have you ever thought that? It's not true. Only those with eternal life will exist forever. That's not true either. We're going to dig into some of God's word and we're going to see that these are actually incorrect notions about eternal life. So what is this eternal life that God gives so freely and what is it not? Maybe the easiest way to approach it is to divide it into two pieces. Eternal and life. Let's look at eternal first. That one's pretty straightforward. It's eternal. It goes on forever and ever and ever without end. It's perpetual. It's infinite. George Bernard Shaw said, the English are not very spiritual people, so they invented cricket to give them a sense of eternity. <laughs> cricket takes three to five days to play a game, and they play a minimum of six hours a day. <laughs> That's a long game. Yikes. But that quote makes it sound like eternity is just a whole bunch of time. And I've said this so many times, you're probably tired of hearing it, but eternity is not just a lot of time. It's not unending time. Rather, it's completely outside of time. It's no time at all. Eternity is no time at all. And I know it's hard to get our mind around, but God inhabits or exists in eternity. And he did so before there was time. And he continues to exist in eternity outside of time. That's why God can see all of time in front of him in a moment. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. He sees the middle. He's outside of time. Now, we don't know what that's going to be like. Our, our finite minds can't comprehend it. But let's just focus on the fact that it's never-ending. Eternal life begins and it never ends. It goes on forever. And then secondly, eternal life is speaking about spiritual life, not physical life. Jesus said this in John eleven twenty five. 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now on the surface that seems contradictory. He lives even though he dies. Does he live or does he die? Yes, <laughs> he dies but he lives. See what it's actually saying is that whoever believes in me will live spiritually. And even though he dies physically, whoever lives spiritually and believes in me will never die spiritually. That's what that's saying. It's kind of a play on words, but he's differentiating between physical and spiritual life. And so when we talk about eternal life, we're not talking about eternal physical life. We're talking about eternal spiritual life. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a physical dimension. We will, when our, when our body is resurrected and we receive a resurrected glorified body, we will have a spiritual body. But when it talks about eternal life, it's talking about the spiritual aspect of it, not the physical. Now let's take it, let's take it a step further even. Eternal life is more than just eternal existence. Because even the souls of unbelievers will exist forever. Do you believe that? Have you thought about that? I think we'll have a much greater appreciation of eternal life if we consider the alternative. Every soul, saved or not, will be eternal. The Bible makes this really clear, beginning in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, woohoo, others to shame and everlasting contempt. They have eternity too. Jesus, in speaking of judgment day, said the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And then in Revelation 14, verse 11, it says, And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. What a haunting, what a haunting thought. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher from England, and he had this to say about this verse. He said, Oh, eternity, if all the body of the earth and sea were turned to sand, and all of the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill but a tenth of a part of a single grain of that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away. Yet, if at the end of all that time the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But the ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up to heaven, or ascendeth up forever and ever. Every 10,000 years, a grain of sand taken away. But the whole universe is a ball of sand. And that doesn't begin to touch on what eternity is. Because eternity is not just a lot of time. It's not just a lot of sand. It's outside of time. It's never ending. And so even an unbeliever will exist forever. There is a teaching called annihilationism. And that's the idea that after judgment, those who are condemned will cease to exist. But I just don't see that in scripture. 
God says it will be an eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. So consider again the, the, the notion of eternal life. It's not just eternal existence because even unbelievers have that. It's something more. There's a bumper sticker. I don't have it on my car. I'm not a bumper sticker guy. But this bumper sticker says, eternity, your choice, smoking or non-smoking. <laughs> I'll take non-smoking myself, thank you. Eternal life is more than just duration of life or quantity of life. It's got to have an element of quality to it to differentiate it from eternal condemnation. So that's what I want to consider next. Verse 12 says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now before we define eternal life, let's consider physical life. How would you define physical life? How would you describe it? Now I thought about this this week and I came up with my own definition. This is not scientific. It's not Webster or Noah. This is Paul's definition. But I thought about it. Here's my definition of physical life. At its core, life is the ability to have an interactive relationship with the people, places, and things around us. That sounds pretty good. That, that's just my definition. The ability to interact relationally with the people, places, and things around us. See, when we're dead physically, we can still be in the same place, surrounded by the same people and things, but guess what? We can't interact with them anymore. There's no relationship there. So I'm defining this as life. Now, of course, there's also a biological definition of life. Here it is. Life, the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. Okay, that's a biological definition Fine, but all of that biology merely supports our ability to have an interactive relationship with the people and things around us. So I'm sticking with my definition. So with this in mind, what is spiritual life? Here it is. It's the ability to have an interactive relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the definition of spiritual life. Let me give it to you in Jesus' words. Here it is. Now, this is life. The verse even has a colon, just like a dictionary definition. He's defining it. Now, this is life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's God's definition of eternal life. The ability to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a lot like my definition of physical life, only it's spiritual. Spiritual death, on the other hand, is the inability to have a relationship with God. In fact, it's the complete and final separation of God from mankind, or of a person separated from God for all eternity. That's what the Bible refers to as the second death. That would be spiritual death. So eternity, eternal life, it's simply a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the definition of eternal life. Now one of your first reactions might be, well, I have that now. 
Exactly. <laughs> if you're a believer, you do. Eternal life is not something a believer receives when they die. Eternal life is the present possession of every believer. This is one of the points that verse 12 is making. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It doesn't say he who has the Son will receive life. You have it right now. Believers have it right now. And this isn't just a fluke verse. Let me reinforce it with a couple others that I have referenced there. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life right now. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We either have life right now, or we're sitting under the wrath of God. John 5.24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So we're on one side or the other. We're either dead spiritually, separated from God, or we have life. We have an interactive relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the definition of life. It's a our, it's our present possession. Now granted, our relationship with God is going to change after we die physically. Right now we see but a poor reflection and mirror. Then we will see face to face. So we still have a relationship with God, but it's like a, there's a bit of distance here. We're not, we can't see him physically. In fact, if we could in this body, we would die. No one can look at God and die. We need a glorified body. But we will be in the presence of him face to face. So we'll more fully experience our relationship with God in eternity. But we still possess eternal life right now. Eternal life is a relationship with him. Now here's, here's the next thing to notice though about this eternal life. It's not a thing or a power that we possess, but a person. Eternal life is a person. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, Jesus didn't just obtain life for us. He embodies it, quite literally. Remember when Lazarus died? There's Jesus staring death right in the face. And what did he say? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Not, I have life or I bring life. He says, I am the life. It's a person. Eternal life is a person. Now with this thought in mind, turn back to the very beginning of 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 1. Actually, chapter 1, verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. Keep in mind, life is a person. It says, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Isn't that cool? Now, it says, we have seen it. The word it is not in the Greek language. It was put there to try to help us understand it. But it is not there. You could more appropriately and more clearly say him, he. 
because that's what it's saying. In fact, the New Living Translation reads this way. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. Eternal life is a person. And having a relationship with that person is what brings eternal life to us. Now we talked in chapter 4 about how when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, our human spirit is joined with his eternal Holy Spirit. And the result of this merger is eternal life for us because our spirit is joined with his eternal spirit and they can never be separated. He's eternal. And so that's what 1 Corinthians 6, 17 is saying. It says, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is what regenerates us and gives us eternal life. It's a relationship with a person who is life itself. Again, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Is that how you've thought about eternal life? As being a person and a relationship? Maybe you'd say, well, if that's all it is, <laughs> I hope you all say, but if that's all it is, I'm kind of bummed. Because I was hoping it was more than just a relationship. I was hoping it was like the power to walk through walls. The power to fly. Ooh, I'm for that. <laughs> I want to just, like the power to fly. I was hoping that this eternal life was just this whole new thing. And you're telling me it's just a relationship with God through Christ. And they've already got it. Is that a letdown? Well, before you get too bummed out, consider everything that comes along with a relationship with Jesus Christ. This might be a little bit of an eye chart, but I put it up here. I'll read it to you. Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 2.6-7, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You want the incomparable riches of grace? It's in Christ. Philippians 3, 8, 9, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 4, 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So what if eternal life is just a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? What if that's all it is? What is it? How about no condemnation? Every spiritual blessing. 
incomparable riches of his grace, surpassing greatness, all your needs, eternal glory, and far more. That's all there is in Christ. <laughs> like everything we could ever want or need or imagine is in Christ. So if we feel like we need something else other than Christ, then we don't understand what it means to have Christ himself. This is the offer and the essence of life. It's a relationship. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. So let's look finally at the assurance of life. Verse 13. You should know this by heart by now, right? This has been our key verse from the very beginning of the series. I've been bringing up this verse again and again. And now we come to it. Chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Man, that's cool. We've seen from the very beginning, God doesn't hide his truth. He doesn't play a shell game with us. Figure out who I am. Figure out what I want. Uh, no, you're wrong. No, he reveals himself. He reveals himself. He did it physically. He did it through his word. He even does it through creation. We see his awesome power and might and brilliance. God reveals himself. He doesn't want you to wonder who he is or what he's done or what he wants of us. And once we receive him, he wants us to know with absolute certainty that we have eternal life. For this final section, I just want to do something really simple. I just want to retrace everything that we've seen in 1 John that speaks of how we can know with assurance that we have eternal life. And I've grouped it into three categories. Again, maybe a bit of an eye chart, but I'll read them. First, we know that we have eternal life through obedience. We see this again and again. I'm going to read. There are two, four, five verses here that speak specifically to this. First John 2, 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Obedience. 1 John 2, 5 and 6, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If we're in Christ, we're going to walk like Christ did. It's that simple. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteousness, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now again, it's not talking about sinless perfection. John said, if anyone says he is without sin, the truth is not in him. It's not sinless perfection, but it's a deep desire to do what is right and an increasing ability to do so. Not perfection, but progress. 1 John 3.10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. 1 John 5.18, we haven't come to this one, but we will. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. Now again, this is talking about a pattern of willful, continual, habitual sin. 
A person who is born of God cannot do that. Willful, continual, habitual sin. So, do you see a pattern of obedience in your own life? When you, when you, when you put your head on your pillow tonight, think about it. Look back at this past week, this past year. Look at your life. Am I characterized by obedience to Christ? And if you do, see, this kind of obedience can only happen when our lives are transformed by God himself. That's why he can say, if you see this in your life, you can know for certain that you're saved. Obedience is an assurance of salvation. It's not something we do to earn salvation. It's something we do because we've been saved. The second thing, we know that we have eternal life through our love for others. There's three verses that say this specifically, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Pretty clear. 1 John 3, 18 and 19. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. It's by the way we love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you see this love for other believers in your personal life? Again, it can only happen if our lives have been transformed by the power of God. And when we see ourselves loving other people, again, not perfectly, but there ought to be a pattern of love for other people. When we see this, it's an assurance of our salvation. And then thirdly, we know that we have eternal life through the indwelling spirit. Two verses on this, 1 John 3.24. Those who obey his commands live in him. We've seen that already. And he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. It's the power of God to obey him. And it comes through his spirit living within us. 1 John 4.13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Okay, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, do you feel God's indwelling presence in your life? Do you hear his voice speaking to your heart? Is he giving you insight and understanding into his word that doesn't just come from your own intellect? You should be experiencing that when you open the word, if the spirit of God is dwelling in you. Do you feel him changing your motivations, your desires, your temperament, your priorities? Do you receive comfort in the most difficult of times? See, all of these are evidences of God's indwelling spirit. And he wants it to be an assurance of our salvation. When you feel this, when you see this happening in your life, when you sense the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, an increasing measure, this is the presence of the Spirit in your life. So again, 
verse 13 of our text. I write these things, all of these things that we just read. I write all these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is God's will for us, that we have eternal life and that we know it. It's the whole point of the letter and the point of our series. So do we have this absolute certainty of eternal life? Well, let's just do a quick wrap-up. Six key points that I don't want us to miss. First of all, eternal life is a free gift from God. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. But like any gift, it must be received. It does us no good to just sit there unopened. Secondly, eternal life is more than just eternal existence. Even unbelievers have that. So it's not just a duration. It's a quality of life. Eternal life is simply this. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Eternal life is to be found in Christ. Eternal life is not something future. It's the present possession of every believer. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life right now. Hopefully, you enjoyed that eternal life, that relationship with Christ as you worshiped God this morning. You're experiencing that eternal life. Eternal life is a person. It's not a power or thing that we possess. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And finally, God wants you to have absolute certainty of eternal life. If you're not absolutely certain and you walk out of here this morning, it's your own fault. God has testified to it. He says, you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. What kind of thinking is behind that kind of refusal? Usually pride, stubbornness, sinfulness. That's not what God wants. He wants us to change our mind. That's the definition of repent, to change our mind and to come to him. So would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, I love the words of Scripture, the disciples who said, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And that's our thought this morning. Where else should we turn? God, you have the words of eternal life. And what can we say but thank you? What can we do but worship and adore you and obey you, God? Because you've given this life to us as a free gift. God, I pray that those words of life would sink deeply into our hearts and minds and that they would transform the way we think, the way we talk, and the way we act, God. Help us to live out these temporary lives of ours in light of eternity, not clinging to the passing pleasures of this life. We thank you for the delight that is in this life, God, but may that not consume us. Help us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, eternal treasures. And God, we long for that day when we're not looking at a dim reflection, but we're seeing you face to face forever. And God, we wait with eager anticipation and faith. And while we wait, God, we worship you. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.